if we have this political imagination to say decriminalize borders the way that something like marijuana has been decriminalized in many places in the United States, I think that could change a lot of people's lives for the better. Because you've always taken such charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. Are you an inventor or do you know an inventor? Welcome to the Border Chronicle podcast. I am Todd Miller, and along with fellow journalist Melissa Nobleske, we publish every Tuesday and Thursday on thebordercronicle.com. So please uh, come and find us there. We we also we publish a lot of written pieces, but also twice a month we publish a podcast, and that is what you are listening to right now. And today I am super happy to have with me um, writer, author, journalist, Anna Likas Miller. Um, thank you for being with us today, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to join the Border Chronicle. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, today, Anna, our conversation might have even an extra pertinence to it um, as we are here, at least in the U.S., and in this in the holiday season, right? And, and there's so many store abounding stories of mm. of uh, of families coming together and love and romance, even um, that those that that these uh, you know the kind of holiday joy that that we hear so much about and fills the Christmas carols, right? And <laughs> But, um, so this is what, what I'm getting at here is that, um, Anna has written a book and it published in June. So it's a very new book. It's called Love Across Borders. Let me get the subtitle Passports, Papers, and Romance in a Divided World. And, um, I highly, highly recommend this book even before we start, but you'll soon find out as, as we, as you listen to this conversation as to why I highly recommend this book. Um, but, uh, but, um, uh, Anna in, in this book, you know, looks at romance and love, but adds, adds this other part of it, which is the global border apparatus and, um, and how that, like what that, how that plays into it. That's often in the, in the holiday cheer, uh, we, 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 that, that bounded world of territorial borders and, and, and passports and bureaucracy and border walls and all that stuff, which also play a big part, are not really, you know, are sometimes left out. So I think today's conversation is going to be really great. And, um, uh, Anna's book, again, highly recommended. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very like heart uplifting tale, but at the same time, a tale fraught with all kinds of this, these, uh, um, this, this apparatus that we're talking about. But I, I shouldn't talk anymore. I'm going to let Anna first. The, so the first, um, thing I wanted to ask you is how, like, what, what made you come to write this book? Like, what, what was there an initial story that really got you thinking about this? Um, how did that start? Absolutely. Well, it's a great question. It really all started with my own love story, personally, where I am a Lebanese-American journalist. 
I was living in the Middle East first. And first I was based in Israel, Palestine. Then I was based in Beirut, Lebanon. And then I went on a trip to Istanbul, Turkey, where I met a guy named Salem Rizik, also a journalist. Um, and we had everything in common except I was American and he was Syrian, which um, did not stand in the way of us connecting whatsoever. But the thing that was quite different is the way we both moved through the world. I had this passport where I could really pick up and go to the Middle East and start working as a journalist and have this very adventurous life. And he was kind of stuck in the Middle East. He couldn't travel the way that I could, even though he still had the same hunger and thirst and desire to see and understand the world the way that I did, which was, you know, formed such a huge part of our bond together. And we fell in love in Istanbul, which, um, you know, was I consider it an extremely romantic city. I always say that Paris has nothing on Istanbul. And because in a lot of ways, Istanbul is what allowed our relationship to happen because it was one of the only places in the world that a Syrian person and an American person might meet and fall in love because of sort of the way that our respective worlds are defined. And I always thought about that in the beginning of our relationship, but it didn't come to a point that it threatened our relationship until the Turkish government actually started cracking down on both Syrians and journalists. And Salem can I ask you, can I ask you one yeah, question? Yeah, how, how did you, like, what was... Can I ask you about the moment you met? Oh, then you can. Yeah, I'm just of curious course. About that. <laughs> it was. I mean, it's sort of in the introduction of the book. It was very classic journalist. Um, I was going to stumble and didn't know anyone, and I was I was like a 25 year old extrovert that like wanted to meet everyone. So I just you know sent out a Facebook message to one of my friends and was like. Who should I get to know? Who should I have a drink with? Like, who should I meet? I just wanted to, you know, put my tentacles everywhere and kind of see and experience absolutely everything. And she's like, you know, gives me the names of some people, some people who are still some of my best friends this day. And, you know, one of them was Salim, who became a little bit more than one of my best friends this day. Uh, so, um, yeah. And him and I just sort of struck up a conversation. I remember very specifically, this is so random, but I was sitting in a cafe and he called me on Facebook Messenger. And I just, I didn't realize that you could use Facebook Messenger to call people, which I thought was quite funny. And I was just like, wait, is this, is this my computer ringing? Like what's going on? And I, that was the first time we talked and he felt just extremely familiar to me. And I don't know if it was you know, something that was romantic or it was just this familiarity of colleagues that are kind of covering the same types of stories. But it just felt like we'd known each other for ages. So from that moment, I was quite excited to um, meet him in person. And yeah, meeting in person was just, um, you know, felt like I had just met someone that I really wanted to yeah, get to know better. And, you know, not so much in a, um, you know, not at that time in a, you know, oh, we going to spend the rest of our lives together kind of way but it felt like a very much like oh yeah we could be partners in crime but like maybe right now that means like we're working on these stories together and things and who knows like, like I was not thinking long t again I was a crazy extroverted 25 year old that was like traveling around and being a journalist <laughs> so um uh yeah I was I you know I, I think friends from that time might have described me as quite commitment phobic <laughs> um and uh if you know you know and um and yeah, so then when I uh, started falling in love with Salem, and it was quite funny to um, 
feel very devoted to this person. And what did end up happening when the Turkish government did start cracking down on Syrians and journalists was he was kicked out of the country. So this um, really challenged our relationship and put us suddenly from this, you know, very fun, flirty, falling in love type of moment to like, oh my God, what are we going to do in order to be together? And so it was navigating this incredibly difficult moment in my life where it was both um, just heartbreaking to leave behind our home in Istanbul. It was um, scary because we didn't have that many places in the world we could live. Actually, we had one. It was Erbil, Iraq. And um, yeah, and it really it, it demanded me to uh, grow up really fast and it demanded us to make a very strong commitment to each other to be together and it um maybe in a sort of way of processing the moment as journalists and writers are often want to do instead of just being like oh my god this is happening to me I was like well this has to be a story that's happening to other people like how are relationships affected by um this border apparatus as you call it and the way I saw it was very much like, well, I have this U.S. passport, so I have this flexibility where, you know, maybe it's not utter freedom, but it is more freedom than someone with a Syrian passport, right? To be able to follow, to be able to... And it wasn't just my U.S. passport. There were other privileges I had that I didn't even realize it at the time, uh, one of which was being a journalist, so I could go and I could live somewhere else and I could find stories there. One of them was not having children, so I wasn't worried about um, people that were depending on me. And so, so yeah, so I was able to do that. But then I became curious about, you know, what about a Syrian couple who, you know, did not have, as I call it, the convenience of a U.S. passport between them? You know, what about couples that are split across by the U.S.-Mexico border, which I'm sure many listeners in America know all too well? Um, what about just all of these People, whether they're, um, you know, in the global south and do not have a passport that affords them freedom of movement, or maybe they're a couple who are kind of between the global south and the global north in the way that, like, maybe Salem and I could be seen and sort of what, how do those enormous differences in privilege and how you navigate the world affect your relationship? How, how can you use them to stay together? When does it tear people apart? So it became this kind of academic dissecting of my own life but also using that to connect to these other people and explore the versions of us that existed in different contexts and um i'm really grateful to everyone who did enthusiastically agree to be part of this book yeah that makes me curious was that hard to uh, I like when I think about it, I think, wow, there's probably a, a lot of stories like that. Was it hard for you to find people in those in those sorts of situations? No, not really. Once it started now, I joke, I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm just attracting all of them because I feel like my entire friendship circle is some kind of, you know, we married for a passport type of thing. But, um, you know, it it wasn't a you know, once I sort of had that intention and I was looking for it. Um, people, what I could really tell when people connected with the idea and when they had maybe felt something that I'd felt and we were feeling a connection with each other because of that. And, um, and yeah, and it was, it's just, it happened so much. Like you said, it happens, you know, in Syria, it happens in Yemen, it happens in Mexico. Um, it's, it's so pervasive 
And, um, and, you know, and especially when someone, you know, hope, like in the cases where someone has a happy story, people can be quite um, happy and proud of the way that they have been able to triumph against something that I'm sure at various points felt bigger than them. So um, a lot of the time people were excited to share those elements of their stories, which is an honor to get to capture as well. And, um, you know, talking, getting, having the opportunity, having the excuse <laughs> to talk to people in this way gave me so much strength at that time of navigating my own story that sometimes, you know, at various points I didn't know, um, you know, when mine would end or what my resolution would be, but sort of getting to talk to, say, someone like Cecilia, who did all of this and has children, <laughs> um, getting to talk to people who, um, you know, had waited so long, like Muhammad and Amal, to get to be together. Um, it was, you know, it was an enormous gift um, to me <laughs> in that moment. And I'm just happy that it's now a book that I'm hoping that other people can experience getting to know those stories as well. I think like one of the great things about your book is um, how you weave the stories of other people with your own story and you go back and forth. It's so compelling. Thank it just you. Keeps, it was really hard. <laughs> oh, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there a way maybe um, you could share, you mentioned some of the names, like mm. Cecilia and Muhammad and Amal and um. Uh, but um, is there, would it be possible for you to maybe give listeners a sense of some of these, like, some more details of maybe one of the stories or a couple of the stories oh that, you, my gosh. that you wove you wove with your own or just a little summary of it? Yeah, um, it's so hard to pick one or it's so hard to, um, yeah, people sometimes ask me, they're like, which is your favorite story? I'm like, that's like asking me for a favorite child. Um, but yeah. uh, one... <laughs> One story that I think was very, very challenging to weave was one of the last ones. And it's one of the things that was so challenging about it is she's a very close friend of mine. Um, her name is Valentina. Her partner's name is Lorenzo. Uh, we've been friends for about 10 years. And um, she was basically going in. She um, she was undocumented for many years. She's from Colombia, but spent most of her life in the United States. So one of these very classic stories of just feeling absolutely American until Trump came into power. And, um, you know, and she was able to regularize her status through marriage. And um, the way the way that that both was it just created a very beautiful moment in her relationship of suddenly getting to feel this safety and home in a country that was her home and um and also the way it changed her life but it was also happening at the same time as you know i was doing something similar in the united kingdom with salem so we had this um exchange going on while we were both going through this of just like the enormous file folders of documents that we both needed to have and like what a pain in the ass it was to be proving our relationship and um this sort of commiseration that we had going on so uh that story was very hard to weave with mine because it was different than the others where that was sort of something that was maybe more 
chronological and this it was just like so close it was like hard to see the forest from the trees you know but I think um you know because of that closeness it did end up being one of my favorite chapters and so even though I had way too much material just because this person is so important to me <laughs> yeah um it makes me uh think about like all, all your stories and the kind of bureaucracy that like often with border, like when we think of when it's like when people think of borders, it's often you know rightfully you know the walls and the mm -hmm. barbed wire and maybe the surveillance and but um a lot of times that the this like ten million pounds of bureaucracy mm. um part of it is is um is that part that's you know maybe not not known as well unless you're in one of these situations unless and, you're uh, in it. <laughs> Right. Um, and it's funny because a lot of times borders are thought of as, oh, as well, which, which your narr the, the, the premise of your book kind of is a counter to this too. Like, oh, border crossings are just these bureaucratic places where you go and you show your passport and blah, you're let oh, in you or whatever. If yeah. you have a U.S. passport, right? And, um, and, and, and what you're, the complication that you're bringing out, which is so valuable in the border literature, right? Is that of, of this, of these like connections of love, right? That so often go across, across these border systems. And it makes me also think of, you know, the passport and you go in pretty de detailed, um, into the passport. Like I'm like in, on the US Mexico border in Nogales near where I live, um, uh, that, you could see the the actual first border wall was built, mm. or it was actually a chain link fence, but it was built in 1917. And when you look behind why, it was because the passport was invented and they started the quota, the quotas on the border because of the pass. So, so like this idea of a passport, the recency of it, like a hundred years ago, it just barely was beginning to exist. And then the kind of idea that a lot of us have, right? That passports have been around longer than mountain ranges or rivers, right? Uh, and really, like, your book, you go, the way that you go in, you challenge these bureaucracies and their premises. And I wonder if you could speak more to that and maybe even, like, yeah, speak more to that in any way, which way you want. If you want to bring in specific examples from any of the stories, please feel free. Yeah, I love that you said, um, you know, this idea that we think of borders as being older than mountain ranges and rivers and everything because uh, they're they're not and if you think about the world as you know just continents and oceans and mountain ranges and rivers and this place where you know indigenous people before colonization might have inhabited you know yes of course there were sort of different groups of people but you know it was borders were fuzzy it was sort of just you know, something would flow naturally into another, whether that's in the Americas, whether that's the Middle East, before, of course, you know, the colonization came and drew imaginary lines. Um, so it's, I think it's really magical to sit and think and imagine a borderless world just being, um, being like that. And, and so, you know, of course, passports as sort of, or not necessarily passports, but various forms of identification have existed for a long time. You had, you know, ways of trading, you had ways of distinguishing someone who 
was a citizen from someone who was enslaved in the Roman Empire. Um, you had various, you know, you have these like beautiful scrolls in Japan. My personal favorite example was uh, these West African face masks that would tell the different tribes and kind of like based on the art of the mask to see who is a friend and who is a foe, who you would trade with and who you wouldn't. Um, but then these sort of started becoming something that was more formalized as a way to keep people in and out during the French Revolution and as a way to sort of keep the peasants and the riffraff away from the noble and the elites. So it was not necessarily um, national boundaries, but it was very much something based on class. And um, and so, so, yeah, but then, you know, you also at that time, and I note this in the book, you had the first people who were saying, hey, wait a minute, this these restrictions on freedom of movement are a restriction on people's rights. So I found that quite interesting. But, um, you know, then it really, really came as as a way to restrict one nationality or one citizenry from going to another country uh, with the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s. And that was very much, um, you know, there were many racist and economic reasons around that. It was basically Chinese families in places like California who were starting to have a lot of success um, through, you know, building railroads and just, you know, building their way up, creating wealth and, you know, the Anglo-Saxon quote-unquote majority um, not wanting that. And then kind of creating these very similar to the mentality and idea of the French Revolution passports um, in Congress to create an act to keep them out. And that was very much, it was sort of like an experiment. It's like, can we pull this off? Can we do this? And they did, to an extent. There were still people that would come through the Mexico border, which was then an open frontier, which I think is very interesting to think about because, of course, it's not today. And, you know, so you sort of had that going on. And then um, right after World War One, uh, or no, sorry, just before World War One, you had um, passports be started being required as a national security measure, as a sort of like, let's, you know, the world's at war. Let's see who's coming in. Um, who they're affiliated with. And then it was really after that fact that um, they decided to keep them. But it was very much like, oh, there's still like a security situation, so let's keep them. But then they just stayed and stayed and stayed, and you started to see um, more and more. I mean, I think the most prominent example is Nazi Germany of just using citizenship and these papers and bureaucracies, as you said, as a way to strip rights away from people, because as many know, Hitler studied the American examples to say, oh, great, okay, you've made Native Americans and black people into second-class citizens, you've instituted these immigration restriction acts, like, how can I do that with Jews? So, you know, that's when you had stuff like the Nuremberg Laws happening, that's when you had Jewish people suddenly being able to be deported to concentration camps was because of this inspiration really from the americas so this i mean and it's just sort of exploded from there there have been rare and welcome moments in history where things have opened up a little bit i think about say the 1965 heart seller act that sort of 
undid some of the work of the post-World War One immigration quotas um, and, you know, let more people from around the world in is probably why we are as diverse a nation as we are in the United States. But so many of these laws are just based on racism and exclusion and this idea that, and not necessarily anti-immigrant as in anti someone from somewhere else, but anti a certain kind of immigrant, anti someone from the global south, anti someone that's perceived as poor, nine times out of ten anti someone that's not going to be white. So, um, and very much sort of concentrating these resources and power in the global north in a way that is systemically designed to keep everyone else from being able to access it which is ironic, of course, because of the history of colonialism, which pillaged their wealth to even make these parts of the world so wealthy in the first place. But that might be an answer to another question. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> it, it also leads me to that on the question, you have a quote, and this is looking at, at passports, mm-hmm. right, still, and on um, like how a certain one passport might offer many doors to be open and another passport might not Mm -hmm. right but you you have this quote in there especially when you're i believe this quote is when you're not very much in the navigating um with solemn i think you were in iraq and Mm -hmm. um and you write a passport is meaningless if it is not used to expand your world beyond the borders of your imagination so I, i like that quote because also the borders of the imagination that idea that border aren't just this external thing it's it's something that gets in your in your psychology but i wonder if you could expand on that yeah absolutely i love that you picked that quote because it was um i don't know it was something that was very meaningful to me and um for me the borders of imagination I, i do think about americans with this one i do think about and i say this with love and concern um, I think about the way that Americans can very much be in this very, like, normative family structure of, like, oh, you're gonna, like, you know, marry someone here and start a family and blah, 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 and just, like, well, what if something is keeping me from doing that? What if I don't want to do that in the first place? So I see the, bo- you know, the idea of the borders of your imagination to be, like, well, you know, in this case, I'm in love. What are, what are the ways that I can love this person? What are the ways that I can be in the same place as this person? How can I think outside the box? How can I, you know, not necessarily be attached to this idea of, you know, I have to have this white picket fence and this image of success to um, be a valid adult, I guess. <laughs> and, um, and you know, and how how can I create a new life with this person because what I saw so much in so many of the stories was um you know and some people are from very traditional society you know I'm talking about kind of American middle class traditions let's say but I mean in the Middle East we have our traditions as well in um you know so many places and when you are in exile when you are pushed off your land when you are forced to leave um, often that means creating new traditions with your loved ones. That means not necessarily being able to do what you might have had as like an image of your future life when you were a child. But it doesn't mean that it's any 
less valid or any less beautiful. And for me, I think it's actually, maybe I'm biased, but I think it's actually more beautiful because it's unique to you and it's unique to your love. And it's, of course, it's a shame that it has to uh, come against this awful um, border imperialism state that we all live in. But, um, you know, if people are kind of making the flowers grow from the concrete, I think that's a wonderful thing to get to document. Yeah, and that's that um, also, uh, like, along those same lines, and thinking about the passport, but then you also write in the book about those who don't have any passport, right? Um, which is also, like, that sort of, <laughs> I don't, I don't even know how to describe it, right? But, but that sort of stripping of these identification papers and what you, what is called statelessness, right? And not having the state, and um, and a, a, con, a sort of condition, a bureaucratic condition that perhaps isn't even thought of, thought of enough as as it should be, right? Um, but you have like really some very. Uh, a sharp insight in your writing on this. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that as well. Absolutely. I mean, one of the key people that made this chapter become a chapter in this book was, of course, Karina Ambarsami and Klaus. She's this incredible um, activist for stateless people in the United States. Um, after having lived for most of her life stateless herself, um, she was born in the former USSR and immigrated to the U.S. as an asylum seeker with her family as a child. And, you know, talk about a bureaucracy that they got caught in. Um, they got caught in a kind of bureaucracy where they were having their asylum claims denied. Eventually, they were told, OK, uh, go back to Ukraine. Um uh, or yeah, go go back go back to Ukraine basically, which is where they were. You know, she was born in Odessa, I believe, and um and then but Ukraine was not listed on their passports. Like the country that was listed was the USSR, and they were like, well, you can't go to a country that doesn't exist. But they weren't going to give them status either, which put them in this legal limbo of being stateless. And I met I met Karina at a conference called um, the Open Borders Conference, which is in just an excellent group that brings together these amazing advocates from across the country. By the way, I was, you were there in two, you were 2019, right? Yeah, the in-person one. <laughs> I, yeah, I was, I was there. I, I was mean, actually there. That too. doesn't surprise <laughs> me at all. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and you know, I remember my conversation with her because that's where her and I first connected. And I remember my conversation with her and, um, because she'd asked if anyone knew someone stateless and I raised my hand because I have a bunch of Palestinian friends. So I was very familiar with the concept from, that perspective, um, and but I I did not know until hearing her story and getting to know her and the other people who make up United Stateless Better that this extends so much. You know, of course, in the Palestinian example, it came from, you know, the state of Israel being established, pushing Palestinians into exile or living in the West Bank and having less rights than Israeli citizens. Um, so there was a level of bureaucracy that created the statelessness there um but i had not sort of taken that framework and applied it to other places that have similarly been established with new borders the way that israel has been and thought about what happened to people caught in the middle of which there are many so that's 
this whole other um yeah it's it's a whole other you know set of set of conditions to be working with that's even you know even more legally and logistically difficult than you know simply being a refugee who can't go home because there isn't even this legal framework in place in many places to address the fact that people have no country on the map to call home. I w- so along those same lines, and thinking about what is happening right now in Gaza, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, I wonder, you know, like so many like, people fleeing, um, and do you see like this, you know, statelessness is one of those, you know, right now when it, it, that isn't necessarily being discussed, but maybe it should be a little bit more, or maybe as we proceed into the future, or what are your thoughts on that? I have many thoughts on it. Um, I mean, it, I think borders are such a key part of the story as, you know, the Israeli military is telling people to evacuate so that they can bomb them to ostensibly bomb Hamas. Um, you know, people in Gaza are living under siege. It's controlled by Israel. So they can't just go to Egypt or go to Cyprus or a country where they could be safe. They're going into a smaller and smaller and smaller enclave still in Gaza, in Palestine. So, you know, they're still in danger of being bombed, clearly, as, you know, so many people have died. And um, at this point, more people have even been killed and displaced than during the Nakba in 1948 when the state of Israel was first established. So it would not be in the least bit surprising at the risk of sounding cliche to say that it's possible that history is repeating itself. It's possible that these people will never be able to go home. It's possible that this land will be taken by Israel the way that historic Palestine was and that maybe they'll eventually be able to go somewhere like Egypt, though even that has been very politically complicated because, of course, there's a historical memory of kind of that going on with Jordan, with Palestinians going to Jordan. And, um, you know, so there is a huge question of where are these people going to go? You do not see countries around the world setting up some kind of visa program for Palestinians from Gaza the way that they did for Ukrainians who are fleeing the full-scale Russian invasion. Um, you, you know, like you said, you don't even see this this conversation happening so much. But I mean, if you think about, if you do think about Ukraine and you do think about what happened there, you remember, I mean, people immediately fled to Poland. Like if people can, they cross the border to be somewhere safe. People in Gaza, unless they have some kind of very, very, very special permission, probably a second passport, even for ages, people with a second passport are not able to get out. They cannot get out. So that's just like another level of being just completely um, trapped inside that exacerbates an already terrible situation. Wow, yeah, that's um, some, yeah, I like to hear you frame it in that way is, is, um, is, is, uh, is really important. So thank you. Um, so one, one last, um, question as it seems, uh, unfortunately we're running out on time. Oh, but, I can talk uh, about this all day with you. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I do, I want to ask at the, at the end, 
like um to go back to your story with Salem and um what happened and uh and you get your wedding what I'll call your wedding rings but wedding um rings. <laughs> not really they're like tattoo you get they're you tattoos, and Salem yes. get tattoos <laughs> um and I th- I think uh, could you explain what the tattoos yeah, are what they absolutely. say and it's then what right and the kind of thing yeah there is Unfortunately, this is yeah, all audio. Yeah, unfortunately, this so. is all audio, so you can't you can't see it. Maybe I'll send a picture. Um, yeah. So basically, um, without giving away too much of the book, is eventually Salem and I were able to move to the UK, where he was able to claim asylum. And was was quite funny about it at the end of everything was I, as an American citizen, ended up having to marry him, a Syrian refugee. For papers, because um, unlike what everyone thought was going to happen, where he was going to marry me for papers, um, that wasn't possible because of the Trump administration, the Muslim ban. So then I had to marry him for papers so I could stay in the UK, which all of our Syrian friends think is the funniest story they've ever heard in their entire lives, because everyone lives with this stereotype of, you know, if they fall in love and legitimate love with someone with a good passport, they're always going to be blamed for marrying for a passport, even if that's not what's going on. So um, one of the things that was really significant for Salem and I about um, getting married, uh, much more than the actual act of marriage itself, which I think we planned in about a month, um, was the fact that just having this piece of paper meant that for the first time in our entire relationship, we more or less had equal rights. Because when we were um, living in the Middle East, of course, I had a fancy U.S. passport. I could travel much more than him. I was treated much better than him. Um, all of these, you know, things came up in our power dynamic. And then once we moved to the U.K. and once he very um, quickly, thank God, was able to claim asylum and just get a residency permit, suddenly he had some rights that I didn't have. <laughs> so, um, you know, it did we did want to celebrate <coughs> the fact that we had equal rights, the fact that it was just this like accident of birth and geographical coordinates and everything that meant that we had more rights than the other, that it didn't change the people that we were fundamentally. So our um, tattoos say Kasa al-Hadud in Arabic. It means breaking borders is the literal translation. We kind of like to tell friends and listeners of podcasts that it says fuck borders. Um, and yeah, and it's in this lovely Arabic calligraphy that's designed by my sister-in-law. So it looks quite nice and not profane at all. <laughs> Very nice. And so um, with like your ultimate reflection from all that you've done to put this book together, mm. I mean, I know fuck borders i mean if you could just say in a couple sentences what you what you think is how we should proceed based on all of what you know based on your book and what people will know by reading your book oh my gosh how we should proceed i mean that's such a big question i think i know it's too big (laughs) i mean how we should proceed um i mean there's two parts there's both i guess the political and the personal the political, when it comes to borders, I would love it if um, people thought about borders the way that uh, we think about decriminalizing something like marijuana. Like, I think about my lifetime of, you know, when I was, say, in high school, 
Um, obviously, like, weed was a drug that was bad. It was criminal as you could do jail time, etc. And now, um, you know, you can go into a dispensary in many states across the United States and buy weed as a recreational substance that you can enjoy. And, um, that decriminalization process, of course, it's, um, there's plenty of political grievances that it's fraught with, but that has, um, you know, taken political imagination, lobbying, uh, people's well-being in mind to make that happen. So I really invite people to think about borders in that way. And I think a lot of people will read this book and ask me, they're like, oh, but you're this crazy lady that wants a world with open borders. I'm not necessarily saying that, but if we have this political imagination to say decriminalize borders the way that something like marijuana has been decriminalized in many places in the United States, I think that could change a lot of people's lives for the better. I think more people would be able to move freely, to um, see the world, to keep their families together, to take advantage of um, opportunities in many different places. I think there would be a um, potential for redistribution of wealth um, that would be extremely positive for a society in so many ways in terms of both um, interpersonal relationships and global relationships. And um, I mean, last but not least, when it comes to the interpersonal relationships, especially for anyone who is, you know, lucky enough to be spending these holidays with people that they love, I would say just, you know, hold your people close. You never, you know, there's a lot of people who can't do that and you never know how long that you have with people. So I think that that's just something that's incredibly important that came through in each of the stories of the book. And um, yeah, so a little bit of imagination and a whole lot of love. That's great. And I think that's a great way to conclude. I'm very, um, and Diana, um, thinking about, you know, like how can, people get your book oh yeah um, absolutely it's uh wherever you get books i like to send people to bookshop.org just because it um gives a little bit of money to independent bookstores of course if you do prefer amazon that's it's available on amazon it's i mean if you can go down to your local indie and get them to order it i love that um and yeah i mean it's on all the places where you get audio it's available as an audiobook it's available as a hardback it's available as an ebook um so yeah really wherever you get books and i'm on my social media that i typically use is instagram where i'm annalikas miller it's just my name i also have a sub stack that's also called love across borders and um i like to write there sort of you know what's on my mind in terms of borders in the present day now it's a lot about palestine so um i hope to see you there yeah, we'll be there. Great. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank um, you, it's been a really a pleasure to talk to Me you. Me too. Me too. You've been listening to the Border Chronicle podcast. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This episode was edited by me, Steve Heiss. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It will help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border journalism on our website, theborderchronicle.com.